0: there's people who have done diets and lost and regained it and lost it and regained it, who, you know, read my book and find so much comfort in understanding that that is a predictable pattern from dieting and that it's not that there's something wrong with them.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread The Rational View by going to patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I continue my exploration of the science of nutrition and food. I'll be exploring one of the most controversial money-making phenomena in existence, diets. Now, body image is a central problem to a large fraction of the population, and people are willing to spend a ton of money trying to get thin and be more attractive. In this episode, I'm going to interview a leading expert on the science of dieting cut through the flab and get to the core of this issue. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app, share it with your friends, send me a review if you'd like, and join us on our Facebook group at The Rational View. Tracy Mann is professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota. She received her PhD in 1995 from Stanford University, spent 10 years on the faculty at UCLA, then moved to the University of Minnesota and started the Health and Eating Lab. She's interested in basic science questions about cognitive mechanisms of self-control, in applying social psychology research to promoting healthy behavior, and in busting commonly accepted myths about eating. Her research has been funded by NIH, NASA and the USDA. Her book, Secrets from the Eating Lab, was the 2016 winner of the Society for Personality and Social Psychology book prize. Dr. Mann, welcome to The Rational View.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for coming on. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in, in health and diet as a focus of your work?
0: Sure. I mean, I am a psychologist, and I went off to grad school to study cognitive psychology, learning and memory, kind of dry, kind of boring topics. At least I ultimately came to believe that. And some at some point while I was there, I had to read this one article for um, some big test I was preparing for. And the article blew my mind, and after reading it, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I ultimately ended up changing the stuff I do research on um, to work on what that article was talking about. And wow, it's been a good article. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I, I reread it recently. Well, recently, in the last few years, I reread it and couldn't believe how right it was, even though it was written in 1991. It was an article saying, basically, everything you think you know about dieting is wrong.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. And I, I just couldn't, be, I couldn't get it out of my head. And it's not because I was a dieter. I've really never been a dieter. But my parents were. And I watched them. And I had a strong sense of what they were going through. And what they were going through looked so unpleasant and so miserable. It seemed like it was sucking the joy out of their lives to be on these diets and then the same thing would happen every time they would lose all kinds of weight and then they would gain it back and that pattern is exactly what science shows is what happens to people when they go on diets so you know here my parents were thinking they were weak and you know didn't have the strength of character the willpower to to succeed in the long term at their diet when actually they're they're just like everybody else.
1: So that, that's interesting. So you got into, it was basically just a single article and, and then your, your understanding and, and having experienced that with your parents that got you interested in this. And then you went to to Stanford and UCLA and now you're at University of Minnesota in the Health and Eating Lab. But I want to ask one question before we get into dieting. What, what did you do for NASA?
0: <laughs> well, we could talk about that. NASA was worried because when astronauts went to the International Space Station for extended stays, they would lose weight. And NASA keeps careful track of what goes in and what comes out of astronauts. They keep track of a lot of stuff about astronauts. It looks like, it, you know, a little invasive. But what NASA realized is they were deep science here, NASA realized they were losing weight because they were not eating enough. And NASA then concluded, and I'm not sure how it got to this part, that they weren't eating enough because they were stressed, because of all the stress they were experiencing throughout the mission. And their stress wasn't out of fear like a normal person would feel if they were shot up into space. Their stress was because they were so overcommitted once they were up there with so many chores, like minute-by-minute schedules of what they had to do when. So NASA decided it wanted to get some experts on eating to see if they could help the astronauts eat better and at the same time reduce their stress. So I had studied a little bit of stress in eating. So I was like, this is is perfect for me and, and some of my collaborators. So we did research to see if we could reduce It sounds silly now, to reduce their stress by giving them comfort food. So that's what we did. Yeah. And I can tell you how it came out. Not as we expected. Nothing ever does. So Interesting. Interesting. So NASA wanted us to see if we could give astronauts comfort food and if that would, you know, make them eat more because they're eating it and also reduce their stress and make them feel better. So... Before, they would let us do this experiment with the astronauts. They wanted us to do what they call a ground study, which means a study with non-astronaut people, right? Also known as people. So we were setting up this ground study and we, I was like bitching at NASA in my head because why do I have to do this study? Everybody knows that if you eat comfort food, it'll make you feel better. That's why it's called comfort food, right? Right. So I was super annoyed at them that we had to go through this, what I thought of was a charade and a waste of my time, because I knew I wouldn't be able to publish an article saying that eating comfort food makes you feel better, because that's obvious and everyone knows it. So anyway, I think I've kind of made it clear what's going to happen here, which is that we found, first of all, no studies existed in the literature where they looked to see if comfort food made people feel better. It's just been assumed forever.
1: This is the kind of scientific research that people poo-poo and they see the publication. I know. (laughs) Why are scientists studying this? They're wasting their money. I know, right?
0: What are you kidding me? Well, in any case, what we found is that eating comfort food did not make people feel better. um, Or it only made people feel as much better as that same amount of time passing without eating comfort food. So clearly there was nothing special about comfort food it was just time passing but people of course attribute their mood improvement to the comfort food um even though they're they're wrong but but they think it is um wow. so yeah so eating it's a surprising food result really, yeah i know right so yeah so i'm constantly saying well you know eating comfort food is not going to make you feel better but No problem with you eating it. Like you don't need an excuse to eat that thing that you like, the thing that you think brings you this extra joy.
1: Mainly makes me sleepy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So the funny thing is that NASA, we showed them our results, that comfort food wasn't doing anything special in in the ground studies that they made us do before we could do it with astronauts. And they're like, oh, it's different up there. So I bet it will work up there. And it was like, it's different up there. (laughs) Why would you make us do it down here then? If you were just going to say it's different up there. It was stunning. So we started it with astronauts, which was the coolest thing that's ever happened in my life. But then after we'd only done our first astronaut, and I think they had promised us eight or ten over a long period of time. There's not a lot up there at a time. Um. NASA like restructured the astronaut research program and cut half of the studies, including ours. So we didn't get to go on, but I did get to send chocolate pudding up there for one astronaut, and it did make him happy.
1: (laughs) That's awesome! That's a great story.
0: Yeah.
1: So you've basically uh, been researching the. the psychological aspects to dieting, which is which is really interesting. I mean that you, you mentioned that, you know, we've all seen the anecdotes of of people who have successfully slimmed down on a diet and we're told that if we fail, it's just lack of willpower. And, and you saw the same thing. Your parents felt bad. Everyone feels bad because you gain the weight back. So what's the real story? What are this what are the secrets that that you can tell us from the eating lab?
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's a few pieces to the story. The first piece I sort of alluded to earlier, which is if you look at randomized controlled trials of people going on diets compared to people assigned to not, you lose weight in the short run on practically any diet, a a silly sounding diet, a sensible sounding diet, whatever, you lose weight in the short term, but on average, everybody gains it back. On average, people gain back about all but two pounds of what they lost. Uh, over two to five years after beginning a diet. In the control group people, their weight stays about the same. Okay, so diets don't lead to long-term weight loss. Okay, that's part A. Part B is, so are we going to blame the dieters for this? Um, Is it, you know, is it that dieters are weak? And the answer to that really is no, it's not because dieters are weak. And we can we can sort of make this point in a bunch of different ways. But one simple way to make the point is you can measure people's willpower. You can measure their self-control. It's like a trait, right? You can measure it like you could measure their level of optimism or something. And if you measure people's self-control, you find, if you try to use that to predict things that happen over time to them, it does not correlate with their weight or their eating habits. A okay, self-control is a much better predictor of people's academic achievement right, of their grades in school than it is of any kind of eating related outcome okay so that's one way we can say dieters don't have worse self-control than other people because that wouldn't explain the weight regain even if they did um but to, to really appreciate the difference you have to appreciate that dieting sets up a different physiological and psychological context dieters versus non-dieters. So to diet, to lose weight, one thing has to happen. You have to deprive your body of a certain amount of calories for a certain length of time. Uh, Any diet might say they work for some other reason, but they don't. They all work through calorie deprivation. Okay. So calorie deprivation needs to happen for you to lose weight on a diet. Now, the problem is calorie deprivation causes other things to happen in your body, right? So the obvious one that everybody seems to know about, but still not appreciate fully, I guess, is that calorie deprivation messes up your metabolism, right? So after you've been dieting for a while, after you've deprived yourself of calories, your body notices this and tries to keep you from dying in the famine that it thinks you're in right? We should thank our bodies for this. So what our bodies do after a certain amount of calorie deprivation is they allow us, it allows us to survive on fewer calories than we used to survive on. It's amazing. It just becomes more efficient, right? It becomes better at working. It does the same amount of work with fewer calories. The problem for dieters is that means there's more calories left over to store as fat. And so if you've been dieting for a little while and you've lost some weight, there comes a point, and dieters call this the plateau, there comes a point where continuing to eat that same small amount of calories no longer leads to weight loss. Okay, and that's because calorie deprivation has messed up your metabolism.
1: So we actually change our body's metabolism or rate of burning energy by dieting. So we slow down, the body actually slows down burning energy if it's calorie deprived. Is that effectively what's happening?
0: right your body is helping you be more efficient with the calories that come in so you could survive on fewer calories and again it's i mean it seems very obvious how this could have evolved right this is very functional sounding who survived through the famines people who didn't need much didn't need as many calories um, to survive so that's just one result of calorie deprivation another thing that calorie deprivation does is it messes with our hormone levels And there's all kinds of hormones that have something to do with eating. In particular, there's hormones that have to do with hunger and with satiety. And so, after calorie deprivation, the hormones that are associated with hunger, the levels of those go up. Okay, so you're more likely to be hungry. The hormones that are associated with satiation, with being sated, feeling full, right, that feeling goes down. Okay, so you're less likely to feel full, you're more likely to feel hungry. So again, you've been dieting for a while, you've been eating a certain amount of food that somehow wasn't leaving you hungry. Now, after a while, that amount of food is going to leave you hungry. Okay, so that's the second sort of big thing that calorie deprivation does. And then the third big thing, and there's only three, so the third big thing that calorie deprivation does is it messes with your sort of attention, focus, cognition, sort of that sort of set of processes. And in particular, if you've been calorie deprived for a while, you tend to become preoccupied with thoughts of food, right? And we see this, um, you see this in the famous Keyes study where he starved 36 conscientious objectors. Uh, for six months to look at all the effects of starvation and they had to keep diaries. And suddenly their diaries were just only about food, you know, and all they wanted to do all day was this was, you know, 1943, maybe 41. And I think 43, whenever it was, men were not the most likely to clip recipes from the newspaper in that era. And yet that's what these guys started doing. They started planning to have different careers for the rest of their lives after the study was over. Like, they they didn't all do this, but they planned this during the starving part. They planned to open a restaurant or work on a farm, um, you know, all kinds of things that had to do with food. You just become preoccupied with lots of food. Yeah, and you see this, too, in the journals of explorers who are slowly dying because they're, you know, um, polar explorers who, you know, often, alas, freeze to death starve to death while they're freezing to death. They keep journals because that's part of the explorer thing. It's like a thing explorers do. And they start talking all about food as they get hungrier and hungrier and their attention just can't get off of it. So anyway, there's a long way of saying calorie deprivation makes people preoccupied with thoughts of food. So dieters will sometimes say, if there is food in the room, I will notice it. I will hone in on it. I will not be able to stop Thinking about it and looking at it, um, and in addition to that, you get a bigger reward response when you eat food once you're calorie deprived. Okay, so these are things calorie deprivation does.
1: What What about the 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 anecdotes of, of all the the successful dieters and the and the beautiful people that have that have managed to keep it off?
0: I hear you. Um, okay. So think about what these changes that calorie deprivation leads to do. What do these changes do? The metabolic one means you have to start eating less and less. The hormone one means you're feeling hungrier and hungrier. The attention one means you can't stop thinking about food. Those three things put together makes it really hard to keep resisting food, makes it really hard to keep dieting. It makes it so hard that most dieters cannot do it. But it doesn't make it impossible. It doesn't make it impossible. It just makes it really, really hard. And because of that unfortunate circumstance, you're going to have people who succeed at taking off a bunch of weight and keeping it off for a long time. It's a very small percent of dieters for whom this occurs, but they exist. You notice them, you know about them when they happen, people tell you about them. And unfortunately, the fact that it's possible means everybody else gets to blame themselves when they fail. You know, he did it, so I should be able to do it. When in fact, the people who can do it are the unique and rare exception. You know, most people, when facing that context, the context that dieting itself sets up in your body, most people cannot keep dieting in that circumstance. And so they end up regaining weight. It's not because they have a weak will. So, you know, what I like to say is, the problem isn't that dieters are weak the problem is that dieters are dieting right and it's the dieting that is making it impossible to keep dieting it's it's infuriating is what it is the, the process but that is what it is
1: so and so much money is being spent on people doing this i i mean these results aren't obviously well-known or well enough known to stop people from spending billions of dollars on diets. What what should people be doing?
0: <laughs> I'll answer that. But I mean, like I said, people do take off weight in the short run, right? So you start a diet, you probably hit your low, your low weight about six to nine months in, you know, and you're, probably keep that off for a little while maybe another six months or so on average I don't I don't know there's no clear numbers on that specifically but I think for a lot of people even without knowing what would happen in the long term if it would work in the long term or not I think for a lot of people that's good enough for them they're they just want that you know even if they know it won't last forever I think a lot of people still want that just because of the pressure put on everyone to weigh a certain thing and look a certain way and the sort of extreme amount of weight stigma, that's still for sure out there. People seem to talk as if it's gone away. It has not. Um, So I think for a lot of people, even knowing exactly what I just told you, I don't think it would change what they do. No, it'll help some people not do what they do. And there's people who have, done diets and lost it and regained it and lost it and regained it, who, you know, read my book and find so much comfort in understanding that that is a predictable pattern from dieting and that it's not that there's something wrong with them. Mm.
1: So I hope people at least yeah, that's important. take
0: that. Yeah, that's so,
1: important. Yeah. So your book is called Secrets from the Eating Lab. So could you tell us a little bit about what the Eating Lab is?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's my lab at the University of Minnesota, where I generally, it's called the Health and Eating Lab. And I generally, pre-COVID at least, did eating studies there, where we brought people into the lab, usually dieters, sometimes comparison groups and non-dieters, but not always. We changed different aspects of the situation that we put them in, put tempting food in front of them, and then looked at what sorts of things that we changed help them resist the temptation or mess them up causing them to consume whatever it was which for most of this people in these projects did not want to be eating so so we did you know a lot of eating studies and part of why i said secrets is because when people come to these studies they don't know that we're studying how much they eat we tell them uh We use deception. This is something we do very carefully in social psychology with careful preparation and careful debriefing after. Uh, But we tell them a a false story about what we really care about. So we might say, um, you know, we're interested in, um, you know, your ability to do this cognitive task. And, oh, here's some food because we're just nice. You know what I mean? Like, there's always... Food around that just happens to be something we're giving them, but it's always presented as not part of the the research. And of course, we weigh it all beforehand and we weigh it all after,
1: so we know. Am I going to have it. to censor this podcast or, or ruin your research?
0: You know <laughs> how many listeners do you have. I'll probably be okay. <laughs> But also, I'm not doing this anymore. I've I kind of I clearly didn't do it during COVID, and. I haven't started up. I do want to start back up again. I do love doing this kind of research.
1: You have to use a different secret then. I've got a lot of listeners.
0: I got a lot of secrets, (laughs) so we're good. (laughs) We're going to make this work. Um, So just to summarize a decade or two of research in the eating lab, um, pretty much everything we tried messed them up and nothing we tried helped. So like, there's no situational factor we could change that would help a dieter resist a milkshake, for example. But any change we made led them to consume it. So it's really, I mean, the bottom line that, that we took from that, and that I'm taking from that way after it's been done, is that people are terrible at resisting temptations that are right there in front of their face and no one should if you're trying not to eat if you're trying to eat less smoking whatever it is if it's in front of you you are eventually going to gonna fail if it's there long enough you're you're eventually going to fail it's just too hard
1: this is interesting
0: so the people who actually have the best self control according to measures of self control actually use self control less than other people, so what that means is they are their people's good self control is used to keep them from circumstances where they might need self control.
1: Okay, so self control is 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 to to not enter into temptation, as it were.
0: Yes, to make sure you're never face to face with whatever tempts you, um, realizing that. That circumstance is very, very difficult to, to to win, right? So the best people, the best people with great self control, somehow have internalized that. They know that, and so they hardly ever need self control.
1: Interesting that that's how it's done. So everyone is susceptible when the temptation is in front of them. It's just human nature that
0: pretty much everyone eventually, right? Um, What I often explain to people is that, you know, imagine a circumstance where you are in a a meeting and someone brings in a box of donuts. When they walk in with the donuts, you say, no, thank you. Beautiful, right? You've resisted the donut. Well, no, they put the donuts down on the table and you're in a meeting and they're there for the whole meeting. You're not done resisting the donuts just because you said no, thank you when they first walked in you have to resist the donut every time you look up and notice it again, right? You have to resist it over and over and over. So if you're, you know, if it's in your sight line, maybe in an hour meeting, you're going to notice it 20 times. Let's say you resisted 19 times. Resisting something 19 times out of 20, that's 95%, right? Did I figure that out right? It's 95% perfect self-control. That's A plus. Oh, 96 would be an A plus, but eh, great inflation. <laughs> we'll so up. yeah. So um so you resisted it 19 times. The 20th time, you have a moment of weakness. One of those situational factors that we found that lead dieters to disinhibit happens. Uh, one of them is distraction. Get distracted, moment of weakness, take the donut, you eat it. You're you have nothing to show for your good self control you have nothing to show for your 95% self-control level. You're no different than someone who ate the donut on their first look or on their 10th or whatever. Okay, so, so for eating lapses in self-control are very costly in that they undo all the success leading up to it. This is very unique circumstance. So remember, the thing that self-control does predict is people's sort of achievement, academic achievement, work achievement. And if you think about those situations, they don't work like eating does. So I think about my kids trying to study and constantly flipping onto another window in their computer and playing games or whatever. I don't want to know, doing something. You know, suppose they do that and flip over for five minutes and then come back to their work. Yes, they've lost five minutes of work time, but it has not erased everything they've learned up till that moment in that study session, right? So, it's a little bit costly, but not nearly as costly as a lapse of self control in eating is, because the eating one just undoes everything, but the studying one doesn't. Um, yeah. So these are no, all. That's reasons a good point. Why? Yeah. Sorry.
1: No, that that's a good point. So so what? Does anything work? how do you how do you lose weight?
0: So, okay, well, let's talk about what we mean by work. Um, so I don't think work should mean losing weight. I think work should mean getting healthier. And there's this very good news that nobody notices, which is it is so much easier to improve someone's health health and have them maintain it than it is to have someone lose weight and maintain that. Okay, shouldn't that be good news? It's easier to get and stay healthy than it is to get and stay thin. Shouldn't the healthiness be the good thing? It's weird how many people don't think this is good news, Uh, but it completely is. So what I focus on isn't how do I help people lose weight? There's other people out there creating diets, doing all sorts of things, drugs, surgery, whatever. That's not my business. Um, I'm more in the business of finding ways to help people improve their health and stay that way. And, um, And the good news is engaging in healthy behavior improves your health. It just doesn't necessarily make you thin. Um, so exercise, it's absolutely clear that it improves your health. Does it lead to a lot of weight loss? Eh, not not really, not so much. The amount of weight loss you need to improve your health, the amount of weight loss, the amount of exercise you need to do to improve your health, much less than the amount you need to lose weight. So engaging in healthy behaviors make you healthy. That's why they're called healthy behaviors. They're behaviors that make you healthy. And they do, but people don't notice that unless it makes them thin. And I think it's because what people think is, oh, exercise makes me healthy because it makes me lose weight. And the losing weight is what makes me healthy. But no, exercise makes you healthy because it's exercise, right? Exercising makes you healthy. Um, so for a lot of things, people think it's, it's the weight loss aspect that makes them healthier, but, you know, by exercising, starting an exercise program, you'll improve your health, your blood pressure way before you see any weight loss. Interesting. Yeah.
1: I guess that makes sense. Um, so (laughs) you, you, you do this, you've done this research in an eating lab. I'm, I'm surprised that, you know, this hasn't been done before in, in any level of detail. Like, there's so many diets out there. Have any of do any of them come with scientific research on and credentials behind them? Or uh, you know, do people come to you and ask, can you test my diet for for me and get you know prove that it works? Has that ever happened?
0: Um, so I don't do that. Um, I mean, there's lots of obesity researchers who run a diet lab, run a diet clinic create a diet, have patients come in and go on the diet, and they show that the patients lose weight. There's tons and tons of research. There's so much research like that that it took six of us, like six months, to dig through all those studies to find the ones that actually followed people up for two years or more, which were buried, a tiny subset buried in these Um It's not that people don't test diets. It's that people don't test the long-term results of diets. Yeah. And so it's easy for a diet company, any kind of diet promoter, whatever it is, someone who wrote a book, whatever, it's easy for them to say, yeah, this has results. You know, look at the six-month result of this. It's pretty good. A lot of diets. I mean, God, the diets that are out there, there's some crazy diets out there and they all kind of work for a while at least but they don't lead to long-term weight loss. So you've gone through the diet for nothing, it seems to me.
1: I agree with you about these crazy diets. Like Some of them are are very like, eat just this one thing for a year or forever and and you'll lose weight. Well, yes, of course, but it sounds like it's because it's not healthy at all that you're losing weight rather than (laughs) any other benefit. Should any of these diets have warning labels?
0: (laughs) Oh Lord, probably. Yeah, I don't know the rules for putting warning labels on things, but I think a diet should say on it, results are temporary. Do they have to? I feel like I've heard some diet ads where, no, I don't think I've heard that on diet ads. I know that a decade or two ago, the last I paid attention to this particular issue, like the FDA or someone was trying to get diet companies to report the results of effectiveness trials of their diets in their ads and the diet companies refused. And the reason they gave for refusing was that if our potential customers knew the effectiveness rates of our product, they would not buy our product. So diet companies were well aware of how ineffective their product is. And in fact, their product must be ineffective if these companies are to survive because it's all about repeat business, repeat customers. The, I mean, the former CFO of Weight Watchers said it flat out in an interview. And you know, the people who lose weight and gain it back, who lose weight on Weight Watchers and gain it back, that that's our customer base right there. And they say the average Weight Watcher user does it four separate times, meaning they pay to join it four separate times. I mean, if it worked, you're going to run out of customers.
1: So, You've basically studied all of these calorie restrictive diets and shown that none of them really work over the long term. What about um, diets that just rearrange your what you're eating without restricting your calories and just try to get you to eat healthier? Like I have seen, and I've seen lots of theories out there for some. This diet reduces inflammatory triggers, and you know, eat more veg. Most of it just comes down to eat more vegetables and um, more roughage you know?
0: <laughs> which i agree with yes eat more vegetables
1: so so those are good diets potentially um well, increase you don't have your to health on
0: any kind of diet to eat more vegetables right i fully support eating more vegetables that doesn't mean you have to do anything different to whatever else you eat you know you need to get those in there now turns out that if you eat a lot of vegetables, they fill you up and you probably do eat less of something else. Um, And I, you know, and I believe it's important to eat healthy stuff. I don't want people to seriously restrict their calorie intake, but I do think it's important to eat healthy things. So um, I do give suggestions for how to eat more vegetables and less stuff you're trying not to eat but I don't give those in the context of here's how you're going to lose weight. And I don't want people to take them in the context of these will lead me to lose weight because I don't think they, they will.
1: I read an anecdote or a, a, an article on, on your work. And I think you had said that, you know, you need to, to have this eating lab to study um, people's eating habits because they, they typically will lie if you give them questionnaires about what they're eating. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. That's maybe a bit surprising.
0: Yeah, it's all part of the extreme pressure that everybody that's in the air we breathe in this culture that you're not supposed to eat a lot and you're not supposed to eat a lot of junk food or candy or whatever. Um, Participants in research don't like to admit things that. They think reflect badly on them and that's just one more thing people think reflects badly on them this isn't true just for studying eating this is for whatever psychologists are studying if we ask people stuff we're not going to get the unvarnished truth of of what's going on so gotta find ways around that
1: science by questionnaire is is notoriously um fraught with with problems about honesty then and so that you know that's why you set up a lab
0: yes which is why that's why we look at and measure eating behavior as opposed to self-reported eating yeah and i think with eating that's especially important also people don't people are not good at counting their own calories and estimating their calorie consumption Um, studies that do that kind of comparison have people you know use any kind of app or whatever to say what they're eating and how much. People are not good at figuring that out themselves. You know, what people would estimate would not be what is accurate necessarily. I mean some people obviously get very good at it. But in general, we all I think are eat I think these studies show we're all eating a lot more calorie calories than we realize.
1: And a lot more than we should too. I mean there there really is an obesity epidemic right now and especially in, in North American culture. Um and you know it it's changed over the decades, you know, the the and and I guess what's at the root of it is people are just eating more calories. That that's that's got to be the root of it. Is that is that true?
0: I think it's just so many things all all come together. It's what we call overdetermined. So yeah, more calories are being eaten. What's in those calories? Um, This dates back to the 1980s. That's when obesity rates started to increase in the U.S. Um, So many things were happening around then. You know, the rise of fast food. Um, Gosh, what else? The corn lobby. Suddenly corn syrups and everything. Um, People became much more sedentary over that time. There's just a lot of changes that were going on another thing that happened around that time so this is sort of a be careful what you wish for situation but some people attribute part of the increase in obesity to the success of anti-smoking programs getting so many people off smoking which is great and way more important than than weight but um a lot of weight gain happened when happens when people people quit smoking. So, and that was very widespread. Smoking rates are way lower than they used to be, which is great a huge success. But that might be playing a part in it. You know, a lot of things are playing a part in it. And, you know, your body tries to defend a certain range of weights, right? I don't know if we talked about this yet. Um, You know, your weight is... Partly genetically determined, and the number I've seen in these genetic studies of weight is that's about seventy percent genetically determined. So, so people say, well, if that's the case, how could weight be going up and up over these decades? Are genes changing? No, genes are not changing, or at least not that I, I'm aware of. Um, but. If you start stretching that window of that, so your body's trying to defend a certain range of weights, that's a genetically based range for each person. If you start stretching it up and up, you know, slowly, your weight's slowly going up, but your weight will eventually, your body will start defending a higher set range. So that set range, it can creep up. But I've never seen evidence for it to creep down. Right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people I've seen like diet ads saying like reduce your set point diet. Like, no, that's not a thing. But good idea. Sounds good.
1: Right. If it can creep up, why can't it creep down? Right? So it's not necessarily a um a a brain moderated thing because if it was just your brain doing this you would think it could go up or down there must be something that's what's the one-way valve in this
0: yeah i don't know i don't know the mechanisms of that and how your set range would creep but um i know what the studies show and that it can creep up it's not that easy to make it creep up people should generally feel like they can trust their body and that unless they change their behavior extensively they're probably going to stay in their set weight range and when they stop whatever crazy change to their behavior they've made if if their weight goes up it should generally come back down so sort of the most famous study of this they took i want to say they were prisoners but i could be wrong they figured out how many calories people needed to maintain their current weight fed them 1000 extra calories per day For 100 days, okay, and looked at what happened to their weight, and they weren't allowed to exercise. Yes, they were prisoners. Okay, harsh. Also, not on board doing studies with prisoners. This was this is a very old study. So, Um, in any case, what they saw is that there's a huge range in how much weight these guys gained, even though they were all given the same amount of extra calories. Some of them only gained, I think, eight pounds on average. And I think it went up to 30. And then by a few months later, they were all back in their normal range. So it's not that easy to, you know, bring about a giant weight gain. And whatever brought it about, you should be able to undo it if you stop doing that. Generally.
1: Well, that's good news for me and my Christmas binge.
0: (laughs) A little Christmas stuff that'll be gone in a couple months. Yeah. 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 Whether or not you go on that January diet.
1: This has been very interesting. I've, I've, I've learned quite a bit. Uh, So is there anything like if you had one thing that you could do um, to change people's behavior or to, impact you know people's healthy habits, what would it be? Whoa.
0: Wait, is this like wave a wand thing? Or is this like the Yeah, the, yeah. The vice, you could like wave offer. a wand. Ooh, wave a wand. Ooh, now we've unconstrained the realm of possibility. Um I think all the kinds of healthy changes that I think are important would be much easier for people to do if they weren't breathing the air of uh, extreme pressures for thin bodies and weight stigma. So if I'm going to wave my wand, I'm going to make weight stigma go away. And so this is two things. I'm calling it one thing. I'm going to make the weight stigma go away and I'm going to take away that extreme thin ideal. And once we do that, I think people will be fine, would be fine, focusing on eating and exercising for health rather than for weight loss.
1: Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely pressure to conform to an ideal. and It does a lot of damage. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So thank you so much for for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming to chat with us and teaching us about uh, the secrets of of eating well and dieting and or, or not dieting <laughs> and for coming on the showing i'll send you a rational view t-shirt
0: oh really awesome you
1: can wear around the eating lab
0: i'll wear it i will
1: <laughs> all right thanks so much for coming on
0: you're welcome thank you bye-bye